We are now a few months into our study in Romans, and I am frankly amazed that I agreed to preach through Romans. Oh my goodness, what a book. I am humbled as I am going to God's Word and thinking, holy smokes, what was I thinking? You know, could have preached something easy like Leviticus or something. (laughs) Now, the gist of Romans is straightforward enough. The one who by faith is righteous shall live. And then implications that come from that. And the big idea that I said now several months ago as we were beginning Romans is that trust in the cross is power for life. You want power for your life? You find it in trusting in the cross. And tracing the meaning and the connections in Romans is available to anyone and everyone who is humble enough to pray, to seek experienced guidance, and to above all read what Paul wrote carefully and repeatedly. Romans is available to anyone and everyone who wants to come and learn from Paul. And you have heard me several times over the last couple of months be enamored with how Paul fits a tightly step-by-step woven argument through Romans. And, and it's wonderful to see how this works. But I'll tell you what, the last couple of weeks, I have been just floored realizing It's not just step by step that Paul goes. It's one unity. And how God has weaved through his apostle Paul the truth that connects chapter 6 with chapter 3, with chapter 9, with chapter... And and just seeing how all these pieces fit. You know, it's almost like it was the inspired word of God. And here we come to Romans chapter 6. The first church that I interned was Judson Baptist Church, and Pastor Mark and I would meet fairly regularly, and we would talk about any number of things. And one particular time I sat in his office, the thing that came up was fighting temptation, was mortifying sin, was taking steps to help us to take time to be holy. And His advice was to memorize Romans chapter 6. And immediately he set about speaking, giving me a whole chapter 6 from the NIV from memory. No, I never did. But it is a marvelous chapter on overcoming sin, on fighting temptation. And I am sorely tempted was sorely tempted this week to preach through Romans 6 as a sermon mortifying sin tonight. But I believe I would have been failing you and ignoring what is perhaps the most significant theme in Paul in all of his letters. And I would have been making it more difficult for you to kill sin and live in Christ. So that sermon through Romans 6 will come hopefully in two weeks. And the reason is this. 
One of the sermons I listened to in preparing for this was by Sinclair Ferguson, and he was commenting on the fact that there are no commands in Romans before you get to Romans 6.11. And that there are no more after you get past 13 until you get to Romans 12. And I'll paraphrase what he said. Only after a solid understanding of the good news is received... Only after a solid understanding of what it means to be saved by grace is received, is it safe to give the imperatives to the people of God. What he's saying there is we need to understand we are saved by grace through faith. And then for believers, he was talking about believers, then we can look at the various commands of Scripture. Now, Pastor Benji is diligent to give us the good news week after week after week. And you and I are wise to hear it. Praise Jesus. This serves as a check on my own heart and my preaching. I need to remember more often to preach the good news to my own heart and to preach that good news to yours as well. To preach that God loves me and that I am safe in Christ before calling to mind all the commands of the New Testament, which are rightly and healthfully and helpfully there, is crucial. Preach the good news. You are safe and you are loved. After you understand that, we can go to the imperatives. For example... My daughter likes to pick the skin on her fingers. And so at night, when I'm sitting there reading books to her, I notice that she's doing this. And I often tell her, don't pick the skin on the end of your fingers or else you're going to get owies. Well, one night, not too long ago, uh, I was doing this and I noticed her picking her fingernails. And then she noticed that I noticed she was picking her fingernails and she immediately hit her hands. And I realized I am contributing to a grace-less situation. I am contributing to the anti-gospel in her little heart. So I closed the book, put it down, and we had a discussion. And we talked about what it means that God the Father loves us no matter what we do or don't do. And I said, sweetie, I love you no matter what you do or don't do. And my name is Baba to her, and she has learned Abba, so she gets a kick out of the fact that whenever we speak about God, we say Abba, and then whenever we speak about me, we say Baba. You, you should try that too, Chet. But I have a question. I have a question. Why is it that God the Father loves us no matter what we do or don't do? This is not some ivory tower question. This is central to our faith. And this question is either at the forefront or in the background of everything Paul teaches about our relationship to God. What does it mean that we are in Christ? What does it mean that we are in the Beloved? Now, 
There's no way we're going to tackle this entire issue. So tonight, I simply want to understand, help us understand what Paul is getting at in this passage and how it relates to the passage immediately before in Romans 5, 12 to 21. And I believe that Paul brings this up. He brings up this idea of being in Christ. He brings up the idea of being in the Beloved so that we would know, then trust Jesus. So, I'll go through our passage tonight with a very specific agenda in mind. We will circle back again in two weeks and get at what he says regarding fighting sin next time. But tonight, we want to see what we can learn about what it means to be in Christ and how knowing that we are in Christ and all that being in Christ entails, it will prepare us to fight temptation when we face it. So in one sentence, Romans 6, 1-14 teaches us that in Christ, believers are free from the slavery to sin and free to walk in the newness of life His grace gives. Therefore, we must trust Jesus and so walk. Let's look at the start of our passage, verses 1-4. through What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who die to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now, our passage today addresses a question that has been asked by believers and non-believers for at least 2,000 years. And that question is this. If we're saved by grace, if all of our sins can be forgiven, why listen to the law? Why care about any kind of rules? And Paul's answer is simple. In Christ, you died to slavery to the law and are free to pursue what he calls newness of life. We will be emphasizing that phrase next time. But what Paul is dealing with in verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Is kind of a rude question. I mean, it's presuming that Paul is preaching a faulty gospel. And Paul says, God forbid, no way. What are you thinking? I can't believe that that came up. And his answer is, how can we who died to sin still live in it? But then you have to ask, well, where does this question come from? Well, it comes from Paul's own teaching. Paul teaches that we are saved by grace, which is able to overcome any and every sin. This is what he says in the verses immediately prior to this one. He says, now the law came in to increase the trespass. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign throughout through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. However bad sin gets, grace is all the much more better. Hear that, my friends. Hear that. No matter how deep the sin, no matter how bad your sin is, go to Jesus. His grace is greater 
than all my sin. Amen? More than one preacher and commentator has noted that this question, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound, is natural when the good news is preached well. The gospel is astounding. The gospel is is, is, is just crazy from a human perspective. The gospel is amazing grace. You mean I can be free from all the penalty of all my sin? Yes, that is exactly what the Scripture teaches. The Gospel is the good news that any and every sin you can commit can be forgiven if you turn to Christ through faith. Because Paul has preached this message since chapter 3, verse 20, he doesn't bother repeating that part of the message. Instead, he focuses on the fact that once this is true of us, once we have been justified, declared righteous, once we are in a right relationship with God, then we are in Christ. And we therefore have a new source of life. Very different from the source of life that was found in sin. Note with me three phrases in these four verses that we'll come back to next time we preach. He talks about continuing and living in sin. And then he contrasts it with this idea of newness in life. Paul spent the last half of Romans 5 talking about the contrast between being in Adam and being in Christ. In Adam, we continue in sin. In Christ, we walk in newness of life. And the issue in these verses here is the how, or perhaps better, the why you may live, you may continue, you may walk in the newness of life. And it is because... We are no longer in Adam. We are now in Christ. Look with me at verse 3. Paul says we are baptized into Christ. We are baptized into His death. And if you go back and you read all of chapters 5 and 6, you will see that this theme is chalked through. We are either in Adam or we are in Christ. And this idea of being in Christ, or as the theologians call it, union with Christ... Wayne Grudem helpfully describes for us. He says, Union with Christ is a phrase used to summarize several different relationships between believers in Christ. And it's through these relationships through which Christ Christians receive every benefit of salvation. These relationships include the fact that we are in Christ. Christ is in us. We are like Christ. We are with Christ. Now, I'm not going to attempt a better definition than that, but I simply want to note that the concept, this concept, is central to Paul. And we should understand first and foremost that every spiritual blessing is ours because God thinks of us as in Christ. Allow me to explain. In Romans 5, 12-21, we learn that Paul that Paul sees humanity existing in two groups of people. Those of us who are in Adam and those of us who are in Christ. Red, yellow, black, white, male, female, rich, poor, slave, free, married, unmarried. 
All of these distinctions remain, but here's the catch. They are morally insignificant. It just flat doesn't matter. You can be any of those or any combination of those and God still sees you first and foremost either as in Christ or as in Adam. That is the single most important distinction. Every mother's child then is born in Adam. We are born under the reign of death because we are Adam's children and therefore stand guilty under sin. But those who are born again, those who have trusted the promises of God for them in Christ, find themselves no longer in Adam, but instead in Christ. And now we receive the grace and the righteousness and the reign of life in us because we are in Jesus. Now, I want you to hear this remarkable, beautiful poem. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined for us us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. My friends, Paul sees every single spiritual blessing that you enjoy as a result of the fact that you are in Christ. So along with John Frame and Sinclair Ferguson, I contend that all biblical theology, so far as God's interaction with mankind is concerned, has this idea of being in Christ as the foundation. Now, what does that have to do with us? If the idea of being in Christ is a central fact of theology, the central response of the Christian is to know and trust Jesus. Knowledge, as we find it here, especially in verse 3, do you not know? Knowledge in Scripture usually falls into a moral category. In other words, knowledge in Scripture is almost something, almost always something that you will be held accountable for. You will be held accountable for what you know. You will be held accountable for what you choose to forget. You will be held accountable for what you just flat ignore. God has made Himself as plain as is needed and He eagerly reveals to Himself more to those who want to have Him reveal Himself. God loves to make Himself known to people who want to know Him. And that, by the way, is why the church leads the world in teaching literacy. So here's how it fits together. You've heard me say several times that biblical faith must be described as a combination of three elements. I put them on the thing. You, as a Christian, must know that you are in Christ. That is, in 
what we're talking about tonight, the content that we need to know. We need to know that we are in Christ and therefore we have all the blessings of salvation are ours. Which is why when our culture wants to start talking about some Jesus that is weakly defined or is not the scriptural Jesus, we can safely say that Jesus ain't going to save nobody. Then we must not only know some content, but we must acknowledge that these blessings are in fact for us. We must believe that they are ours already and rest. Rest. Just be thankful. Believe. Put it in our heads. Knowledge. And then believe. Make it so in our hearts. And then we must trust. We must take God at His Word and take great risks for the great God who loves us and will never leave us nor forsake us. And is having this kind of knowledge in action is having this knowledge in action that we are able to go about loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is what Jesus is talking about just using different words. And that brings us to our big idea today. Know, then trust Jesus. Now, you know, been dealing with the question, well, what about the natives and Australia, they don't, they don't know all this stuff. How much do they need to know? You know, we are a seminary. We argued back and forth all the time. Did, did you guys do that too, Benji? Argue about that? Yeah, it was, it was dumb. But God knows the answer to that. I don't need to know. What I do know is that you and I have no excuse. You and I have no excuse because as Pastor Benji brought up this morning, we all have how many translations of the Scriptures in our house? How easily available is it to us on our phone, our toys, whatever? In fact, I'd go so far as to think, I think God allows Facebook in part because He wants to remind us just how absurd it is that we don't know more about God than we do. Ouch. That gets into meddling instead of preaching. Furthermore, as you go to God's Word, you will learn to know Him better. He will reveal Himself to you. And you will find, as you are going to Him in His Word, that He is a loving God. And and. He is incredibly giving and and He blesses us in spite of us. And then you'll find in Scripture that He is faithful and He keeps His promises and, and He even goes beyond that. He gives us far more abundantly than we can ever imagine. As we go to God's Word, as we go to God's people who are immersed in His words, we will know Him better and we will therefore love Him and trust Him more. Then, we will know Him and trust Him. And we will see how this continues. Verse 5 and 6. Paul writes, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved 
to sin. Now, when we get to verses 5 and 6, we need to remember the tight connection it has to Romans 5, 12 to 21, which I can't repeat here, and I feel bad because it was like a month or more ago that we preached through it. I'm sorry. That's the way it happens. But what we see is Paul is continuing what he was saying in 5, 12 to 21. And when he says the old self here, he's referring to the in Adam he described there. This is the self that was subjected to death. This is the self that was subjected to the judgment of death on the sin that we had committed. This is the old self. It is not the new self, and the new self is the one who is united with Christ. But Paul also refers to this idea of the body of sin. Now normally when he gives this idea, he just uses the word flesh. Why he changed it in this particular instance, I don't know. But this idea of flesh is Paul's word that he uses to describe that part of us that remains subject to temptation. Anybody know what I'm talking about? That temptation you've been struggling with all your life, and you're like, God, help me. I'm still struggling with that. That is what Paul is talking about when he uses the word flesh, and this time he says body of sin. And its corollary is to muscle memory. Muscle memory. You know what that is. You learned to ride a bike when you were a kid, and then 20 years later, you haven't ridden a bike. You can still ride a bike. Or you sit down at a car with a stick shift, and even though you haven't driven a stick shift in several years, you could still do it. It's called muscle memory. And this spiritual muscle memory is this idea that we have our sins so ingrained in us that it just kind of naturally pops out. And you're like... How did that escape me again? And we find this is what we are to crucify. This is what we are to put to death. This is that part of us, of flesh, that cannot please God. And so here we see that Paul ties this flesh to our old self, the self that was in Adam. No, so no longer are we slave to this self. We're still subject to it. We're still subject to temptation. And next time, we will pay more attention to what Paul says that we must do with this knowledge so that we can fight our temptations. But for now, knowing that that's an old self. It's something that is no longer essential to us. Still connected. We are still struggling. But it is no longer essentially us. Now we can know and trust Jesus. Use God's word to know him better so that you will both love him and trust him more. Because Paul continues, and this is gloriously, wonderfully written. Verse 7, For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with Him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. For the death He died, He died to sin once for all. But the life He lives, He lives to God. Now, there's something most of you probably know if you've been listening to preachers for any amount of time. When, when we're writing our sermons, there is a lot that we just have to skip right over because 
it's just the mind cannot absorb what the seat cannot endure. This is one of those passages that volumes have been written about by liberal and conservative commentators, by Catholic and Protestant commentators. They go nuts on this passage. This is one of those that if you really want to get in, dig into the weeds, well, borrow one of Benji's commentaries because I'm using mine right now. But you can dig into weeds all day long. But I'm a simple guy. I like to just cut to the chase. And, and here's the bottom line on this one. Paul uses the language of justification here. Paul uses the language of salvation from the penalty of sin to talk about sanctification. Salvation from the power of sin. And there we go. That doesn't bother me in the least. Some people freak out about this and they'll go on and on and on and on about pages about why this, that, the other thing. I don't get the smallest idea from these four verses that Paul is teaching salvation by works. I mean, he has spent so much time telling us that salvation is by grace through faith that when I see this understanding of justification, salvation from the penalty of sin, sanctification, salvation from the power of sin, and glorification, which he isn't going to get to until Romans 8, which is salvation from the presence of sin, it doesn't bother me to see this mixed up in one paragraph. Not concerned. Because it seems clear to me that Paul links this idea, this fact that sanctification or our growth in the likeness of Christ is related to our union with Christ. If you are in Christ, then you are justified. You have been declared to have a right relationship with God. You are saved. If you are in Christ, then you are being sanctified. You are becoming more and more like Jesus. And you cannot be sanctified unless you are justified, and you cannot be justified unless you're growing in sanctification. Now, I know I just used a whole bunch of big words there, but just trust me, this is glorious to see how God, Paul, through ties these concepts so intimately so that we can just rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that it is God who saves us and it is God mysteriously who works in us to make us more like Jesus. Which brings us to the punchline of this chapter and that is verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This really is where it boils down to. Paul has taught us all this information, this promise. He's given us a promise that we are in Christ. And therefore, because we are in Christ, we are saved and we are being sanctified. And then he gives us what we can believe, what we can put into our hearts so that we can make our decisions based upon them. You need to know that you are in Christ and you need to understand the blessings that He gives. And then you can begin to consider, you can begin to think about and believe these truths. Then you can begin to act as if you are dead to a particular sin. If you struggle with gambling, if you struggle with gossip, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with coveting, 
remember, and this is where we're going to land hard next time, remember you are free from the guilt of that sin and you no longer live in it. When you realize that you are dead to the guilt of your sin and you no longer live in it, this is the first step and you become free from slavery to that sin. Notice, not free in perfection ideas because we are still, well, idiots. And we keep going back to that sin, don't we? But we are free from slavery to that sin. And then in the next verses, Paul expands on this and he clarifies what he's saying. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Yes, there is his secret. And he gives it in a couple of different places. And we will talk about specific strategies next time as we complete Romans chapter 6. But before we leave tonight, there is one last clarification. And I hope that it will give you freedom as you pursue God this week. Verse 14. Paul says, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now let's go back to our discussion that we've had so far. First of all, we see that this is foreshadowing. Paul is pointing ahead where we're going to go next week, and we are going to understand our union in Christ as a source of strength in overcoming sin and temptation. Then we're also going to find that verse 14 is foreshadowing of the emphases in both Romans 7 and Romans 8. We're going to spend a lot of time understanding the implications. But what we see here pointing backwards is that we are no longer in Adam. We are in Christ. We are no longer in Adam. Sin will have no dominion over you. You, you, are, you are no longer under law. Instead, you are under grace. Because now, you are in Christ. And it is grace. Not law. It is grace. Not law. That empowers you to overcome temptation. The psalmist understood this. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O King, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Because you are freed from the penalty of sin, this is by grace through faith, you are also being freed from the power of sin, which is also by grace through faith. And so you and I can live in such a way that our life reflects the truth that our first priority is pleasing the Lord. And it is this kind of holy fear that shows you how to know and then trust Jesus. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider the implications while you sit at home tonight. Then picture yourself 
going through one or more of the various temptations that you struggle with regularly. And as you are picturing these temptations as they come to you this week, pray! And ask God to show you how your relationship to Him as being in Christ, under grace, being able to resist the enslavement of sin can help you fight that temptation. Because then, as you go through the week and these temptations come, you will have already thought these things through. You will know the promises of God for you in Christ. You will consider them and believe them in your heart. And then you will take steps to doing it for God's glory and for your joy in the growth of His kingdom. Lord Almighty, Lord, I am always humbled when I come to passages like this because I am not free from sin. Not by a long shot. And I know it is grace, not my law, not my commitments, not my fears of being found out that will drive that sin for me. It is, it is grace, grace, God's grace. Lord, I pray that You would enable us through this week to turn to Your Word, to turn to You so that we know You better and therefore love You and trust You more. God, bless us and then make us a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen.